Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. And um, it's a question about, actually, about being saved. It's a question about salvation. And, uh, and it has an interesting story to it, and it is in many ways comparable to many of the incidences that we run across in the Gospel of St. Matthew as well. Because obviously this is a deep concern for all people, that anyone who believed in a life after death was concerned about what that might mean for them. And, and how that works. We find that all the time, too. We find a growing tendency now to uh, presume that everyone, everyone goes to heaven. Um, that's not exactly what Jesus says, and that's not exactly what the scriptures say. Um, and so while the perennial question that was present even in Judaism of the, in, the, in the first century, in the age of Jesus, becomes a continuing and ongoing question for ourselves. And it also becomes one of the great issues in the division of Christianity that took place specifically in, in the 16th century. There was, for instance, on the part of, of Martin Luther in the 16th century, an absolute need to, um, for certitude about eternal life. He lived with great anxiety. In fact, as the, um, the uh, Reformation historian Stephen Osmond says that um, that the world was a world of anxious pilgrims, anxious uh, Christians. And uh, because wondering about eternal life, wondering about salvation, and that the response to that it was in many different ways. For some people, um, it became so burdensome that they eventually had to become indifferent to it. For others, um, they simply increase the capacity, they, they increase the intensity of good works. For others, um, the intensity of prayer. For others, for instance, as with, as with Luther, a simple rejection of the fact that we have anything to do with our salvation. And that it comes to us completely, absolutely, and without qualification from Jesus Christ alone, from God alone. And so then the issue was, how do I know if God has saved me? And this is part of the issue, too, especially in the, in the theology of John Calvin. What, what happens is, is that, and I, I think we said this before, that in the Reformation, the, the corporate theology of the Church, in other words, the, the ancient, the Fathers, the Scripture, um, and, the, and the Catholic tradition, always saw the theological reflections in relationship to the Church, and then only through the Church to the individual. Um, with the with the jettisoning of the church in the 16th century, and um, the what we find is that we're left just then with the individual. So the individual then becomes the anxious pilgrim, and the individual becomes the one. How in the world am I to be saved? And uh, and Calvin gives no answer to that, but he does give the answer that certainly, um, certainly. Uh, there are the elect and there are those who are not of the elect. And that kind of morphed into an idea of individual predestination. And that's something that we, we have to be very careful of. 
because what eventually they came to was that since we're saved by grace alone um, and saved by Jesus Christ alone, and we have nothing to contribute to the process in all honesty, that the question is who has he chosen and who has he not chosen? And so for Calvin, this meant that your, your, your kind of re recognition as one of the saved depends upon your life on earth, um, which is interesting because it's a variation on the Catholic theme of our life on earth it really prepares us for eternal life. But they had to deal with the question, too, of a deliberate exclusion. In other words, God created humanity. Some he created to be saved and some he created to be damned. And um, the uh, and there's there's a there's a wonderful reflection on this idea because that's what we're getting into now in the question of who will be saved, and when we come through through Luther who demands certitude, and uh, to Calvin who presents the structures of that certitude, we have a commentary on that in in a book by uh, um, Max Weber. Actually, it's from 1905, and it's one of the first sociological works. But it remains, it remains a very, very stunning argument that he gives us. The title of the book is The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And in it, he has, and I, I just would like to refer to this, um, in its extreme inhumanity, this means the doctrine of predestination, this doctrine must above all have had consequences for the life of a generation who surrendered to its magnificent consistency. That was a feeling of unprecedented inner loneliness of the single individual. In what was for the man of the age of the Reformation the most important thing in life, his eternal salvation, he was forced to follow his path alone, to meet a destiny which had been decreed for him from all eternity. No one could help him. No priest, for the chosen one could understand the word of God only in his own heart. No sacrament, for though the sacraments had been ordained by God for the increase of his glory and must hence be scrupulously observed, they are not a means to the attainment of grace, but only the subjective external subsidia of faith. No church, for though it was held that extra ecclesium nullus salus, in other words, outside the church there is no salvation, in the sense that whoever kept away from the true church could never belong to God's chosen band. Nevertheless, the membership of the external church included the doomed, and they should belong to it and be subjected to its discipline, not in order thus to attain salvation, that is impossible, but because for the glory of God they too must be forced to obey his commands. And finally, even no God, for even Christ had died only for the elect for whose benefit God had decreed his martyrdom from all eternity. And, and I think that um, that's, that's, again, a very powerful text, but it shows us what happens when, when we tend to individu radically individualize the reflection and the faith of the church and the theology of the church. For that vision that we get from Luther and from Calvin was corrected by none other than a young, a young woman from the early part of the 20th century, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, a cloistered Carmelite sister, who reminded us that the fallacy of this argument is the fallacy of the individualization of theological reflection instead of the corporate reflection of the whole church. So we should keep this radical distinction in our minds as we move into this gospel, because what we're going, to, what is going, what we're going to be grappling with here, 
is, uh, is the ambiguity of being saved. For as, as Luther um, demanded certitude, the Catholic Church could only offer confidence. For God and God alone knows the disposition of the human soul. No priest in any funeral homily, no, no um, family member, no random member of society has the right to declare a person to be either in heaven or in hell. That is God's judgment, his alone, and it is in, in some ways his wisdom and his wisdom alone knows the difference between the saved and the damned. We do not. We know that what the Lord told us to do can give us confidence that if we're living according to how he has taught us to live and asked us to live, we can have a certain confidence that we will in fact be saved. But we have no guarantee, no certitude of that in our lives. And no matter how good a person might seem to us, we also have no capacity whatsoever to have an insight into their eternal destiny. The only way the Church has that is through the process of the canonization of saints, which demands some kind of divine manifestation of their place in eternity. And so the miracles responsible for the canonization process become God's affirmation of the ultimate destiny of that person. And we can accept that then through the signs that he gives us. Aside from that, we have no capacity to judge. And while it becomes very popular to place everybody in heaven, um, the Lord does not seem to do that. And so now, with that kind of maybe too lengthy a, an introduction, but now let's, let's move toward the gospel itself. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now, and he's stopping at the towns and villages along the way. And he's teaching as he makes his way to Jerusalem. And some said to him, Sir, will there only be a few who are saved? The answer to the, that the question stems, this is primarily a, the question, a Jewish question. And while the nature of salvation is, uh, is ambivalent or ambiguous in, in the Jewish vision of life after death, and we know that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, we know the Sadducees did not. Um, and so their view of what comes afterward was, was very, very different. Um, so they asked the question because this was a rabbinic question. Who is going to be saved? And then they would go back through the, the, what the law is, the implication of the law, how, how a person observes the law. And so from the external criteria, they, um, they kind of determine the small number of people who are actually radical adherents to the law will be the ones who will be saved. But Jesus says to them, try your best to enter by the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and will not succeed. In other words, what he's saying, the narrow door, he's saying it, what, he, what it means is not through the wide open gates of the city, but come through the door of the home, come through the private door, the door that, that leads into the, into the heart of a family. Try then to live in such a way that, that you reflect not necessarily the radical observance of the law, but you reflect the spirit of that law, which is, of course, the fulfillment of the great commandment to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the door of the home. That's the door of the home of the Lord. That's the door into the heart of the Lord, and that's the door into eternal life. For without 
worrying maybe about the particular laws that we that 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 the rabbis had, and once again we say there were 636 rabbinic laws that applied to everyday life. Um, that we 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 open our eyes then to the greater law for the Shema Israel, the love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your neighbor as yourself. So basically, he once again now is referring to the narrow gate as the gate that reflects the fulfillment of the great commandment. For people will try many different devices and many different ways to enter into the kingdom of God. And there is no other way except through the fulfillment of the great commandment. And then Jesus says, for he says, once the master of the house has got up and locked the door, you may find yourself knocking on the door saying, Lord, open for us. But he will say, I don't know where you come from. And then you will find yourself saying, we once ate and drank in your company. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, oh, you wicked men. And so he is the story of the indifferent, the story of the indifferent Christian, the story of the one who might minimally practice the faith but have it influence their lives in no other way. This is something, this is some, a plague that, that accompanies us throughout the ages. It's an interesting story too because it's this very idea of the, uh, of the, of the fulfillment of the commandment, the great commandment, that caused um, Joseph Ratzinger such distress um, when he was first ordained a young diocesan priest in, in the Diocese of Munich, when he began to, in his preaching, began to encounter a total indifference on the part of the people to the message of the gospel. And that although they culturally practiced the faith and although they had kind of popular piety abounded, there was deep in the heart a very, very shallow, very superficial kind of adherence to the person of Jesus Christ and to the, actually the depths in the heart of the church and its sacramental presence in the world. And he was distressed by that. And it was that which caused him to take the positions which he took as a, a very important major theological influencer on the Second Vatican Council. So here again, Jesus is referring to these kind of people, the superficial people, the shallow people, and saying, you know, um, you're going to say, but, but, you know, but we, came, but we came to Mass every Sunday, or we came to Mass most Sundays, and uh, even showed up sometimes on Holy Days. And, um, and uh, maybe, maybe went to confession once a year. Um, and so how come you don't know who we are? And Jesus' reply is, because in your heart you have not lived the great commandment. In your heart you have not striven to know me. In your heart you have not striven to love me. In your heart you have not cared about what my teaching and my life means for the world in which you live, the society in which you live, and the manner in which you live, within the family in which you are a part, and so forth. So simple identification, external identification, with the faith is not necessarily a guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It should not even inspire great confidence. If a person can say to themselves, you know, I have done everything I can to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, that person then, based upon scripture, is able to say, I have a certain confidence that because I've done my best to the you know, although I've failed often, I've striven, I've tried. 
um, versus the person who says, basically feels, well, I am justified because I did fulfill my Sunday obligations. And although the Lord meant nothing else to me in the rest of my life, um, maybe my sociological identity as a Catholic perhaps did. And, uh, and we can listen to those conversations, and we can hear those conversations in our own day, our own time. And Jesus says when the, when the judgment comes, and they say, hey, wait a minute, you know, don't exclude us. We were there. And Jesus says, I, I don't even know who you are. Um, you have never gotten to know me. You have never opened yourself up to me. You have never let me influence the way you live your life. You have never let me be part of your daily life. You have never in any way, shape, or form manifested my presence in the world and my truth to the world and my love for the world and so forth. So here now, what the rabbis were trying to do is attain that same kind of certitude that, that, Luther, that Luther strove for. Um, and that, that certitude, um, which Calvin then grappled with, how do we know if we have certitude, how do we know if we can be certain? And, uh, and that comes, and in that comes kind of the exclusivity and kind of the radical rigidity of early Calvinism, um, which, by the way, influenced very heavily the, church, the theology of the Church of England, and, uh, and which became essentially a... Uh, a uh, Calvinistic faith with, with a Roman Catholic facade. And uh, while there's been a considerable amount of development since then in, in, in Anglican theology, it's a thing that John Henry Newman dealt with in the 19th century. The, 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 the rationalists within Anglicanism, the fundamentalists within Anglicanism, and so forth. That um, Basically, what the rabbis were doing was say, if you follow all these rules, then you will be saved. Um, and so, since few people were able to follow all of the rules all of the time, they felt that the number of people that would be saved would be very few. And would interpret this notion of the narrow gate as meaning there's not room for a whole lot of people. <coughs> and so, what happens then? is Jesus says, once he has rejected the shallow and the superficial, then there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself turned outside, and men from the east and the west, from the north and the south, will come to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Many, therefore, who presume their righteousness because of their minimalism in religion will find themselves replaced by those who truly did, in some way, find a deep conversion of heart, a deep attachment to the Lord Jesus, and, and a deep care for him and for his way within the world. And they will come to take the place of the minimalists at the feast in the kingdom of God. And so he says, yes, there, there are those now last who will be first and those first who will be last. And this refers, of course, basically to the idea of the election of, 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 the, of the Jews versus the mission to the Gentiles. Luke, as we know, is a great advocate of the salvation of the Gentiles and the fact that, that the, church, um, is, is, the church that is mentioned in Matthew 
the the good news the the followers of Jesus Christ must be extended into the Gentile world and Luke emphasizes that in in his gospel and here again it becomes emphasized in his gospel who were the first the first were the chosen people and who and what happens to the chosen people when they do not follow the great commandment they then become over they then their place is taken by, by the Gentiles who have, in fact, deeply believed and let their lives be affected and their lives be changed by the depth and the power of their faith. And so we find then in here, we can, we can find a lot of political implications in this, a lot of sociological implications in this, but there's not really that opportunity for us now except to realize, and, and going back and reflecting, for instance, on, on Max Weber's uh, reflection upon the idea of predestination, that, that there is kind of a torment in that. And that one of the ways, and, and his argument, um, Weber's argument is, is this idea, this quest for being sure, a, a certitude, um, convinced of the salvation, eventually, eventually in Europe became associated with prosperity. And uh, while Calvin himself never did that, in fact, is um, there's a great saying about it that uh, the material success of, of the of the elect, and Calvin's view should have laid on the shoulders of the, of the of the prosperous as lightly as a cloak, but instead had become an iron cage. In the famous iron cage saying from Weber's book basically saying that by striving to identify their election in terms of prosperity, they became slaves to that prosperity and were unable to move beyond it and move back into any way, shape, or form into a thorough and good relationship with God. Because while the, while the rabbinic Jews might have depended upon the strict observance of the law, what happened, in, in according to Max Weber anyway, what happened to those who believed in personal predestination um, became slaves to the to to prosperity to wealth um, uh, because they knew of no other sign which they could rely on to guarantee them eternal life. For ourselves, then we hopefully are not able in some way to come up with either a strict observance of the law or prosperity as a sign of election. For us ourselves, and this is part of the power of some of our devotions, especially the devotion to the Sacred Heart, where in fact God demands of us not our hard work and our prosperity, not our strict observance of the law as in the rabbinic Judaism, but of a surrender of our heart to his heart, of a surrender of our own persons to him as a friend, a companion, as one who loves us, cares for us, and looks after us. And so the whole idea of the sacraments is to bring us closer to the person of Jesus and Jesus closer into the depths of our own souls, our own hearts, our own person. The quintessential, the, the apex of that, of course, is the Eucharist, where actually the body and the blood of the Lord enters into ourselves. And, and with the body and the blood of the Lord comes the person of the Lord. And so we actually, in some ways, are able to find a real unity of whole personhood between ourselves and the living God symbolized in, certainly, ever since well, the days of Gertrude the Great, um, of Mary, Margaret Alaco, Claude Colombier, and so forth, as a focus in a turning to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, 
not in any way, shape, or form in some kind of kind of you know saccharine kind of way, but everybody knows what it means to love and to be loved, or what even through absence we know what it could be and should be if it were in fact to be real in our lives. And that deep understanding, that deep lack that we come to learn either through excess or through, or, or through deficit um, becomes for us then an insight into the relationship between ourselves and Jesus Christ that the gospel asks of us. And that the one thing that, that Jesus does not ask of us and the thing that he does not expect of us is any kind of simple superficial adherence um, to the faith without a conversion of heart, without a growing sense. And our idea of a conversion of heart is not the radical emotional conversion that, that we find in revival meetings and camp meetings and so forth of the, of the children of Calvin. Um, but it is an ongoing deepening, an ongoing sense deep within ourselves of a, of a presence beyond us, of a presence that we learned in very human ways how to, how to identify and how to accept and how to treasure. That, that what we learn, what we learn then in life, exactly as we learn it in our development as a human person, from that kind of love at birth, which, which simply is a love necessary for, for self-survival, to, to a love of the other for their goodness to us, for the love of the next stage of our lives of our own kind, with those who make us feel secure and help us to discover ourselves, to a love of the other, which, which ends then in the capacity also eventually to love God. And, and so the gift then of learning to love God is the gift of living our lives humanly well and with a sense of the value and of the dignity which comes into our lives from, from God, the living God, from the one who created us. As St. Bernard says, we do not know ourselves unless we know our origin and our destiny. We cannot know who we are if we do not know that we come from Jesus Christ, if we come from God. And that therefore our life is determined and destined in some way. If we but live the fullness of the gifts the Lord has given us in our hearts, that we might someday rejoice with him forever in the fullness of life in heaven. So, so yes, so this is all a kind of an interesting, the narrow gate and the wide gate. The narrow gate is the gate of the heart, and the wide gate is the gate of superficial observance. One leads us, therefore, into the depth of the family of the saved, and the other one lets us simply crowd into a city where the Lord can look and say, um, even though you say I have taught in our, our streets, even though you say that, he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Away from me, all you wicked men. Let our prayer be that our people move ever more deeply into the mystery of the word, the mystery of the sacrament, the mystery of the person of Jesus. And let us see the image of the sacred heart of Jesus as a challenge to faith, as something that tells us where is the seat of our faith, where is the depth of our faith, where is the exercise of our faith, deep within, or it is not at all. This, today, then, our prayer to the Lord can be, Lord, help me to love you and to follow the great commandment and to be with you forever in heaven. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. 
Archives of Foundations and Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.